You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14, the verses 1 to 19, which was last Sunday morning's text. And seeing we're going to go on to the second part of 1 Corinthians 14, we'll make of the scripture reading for this morning, as well as an introduction to our text, which begins in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14. Let us listen then to the Apostle Paul as he writes, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. And so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church... I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Our text then this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the verses 20 to 40. Let us read that together as well. Brothers, stop thinking like children in regard to evil. Be infants, but in your thinking be adults. In the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then 
They will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Well, then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. But the word, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, trouble in the church. Now, while that as such is nothing new, no one can deny that the Corinthian church had more than its fair share of trouble. And last Sunday we were reminded about that again, for then we began to deal with that contentious chapter 14 of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And what makes it so contentious, well, it has to do with tongues. What is so controversial about tongues or tongue speaking? Well, as we saw last time, any number of things come to mind. For one, there is the whole matter of interpretation. Does that word tongues refer to speaking a real foreign language or does it refer to some sort of special Holy Spirit language? The advocates of tongues are divided. Some hold to the real language position, while others hold to the Holy Spirit language position. And there is no agreement or consensus on this particular point. 
We, on the other hand, as Reformed believers, take the view that since Acts refers time and time again to real languages, the burden of proof lies with those Pentecostals and of charismatic persuasion who argue that what happened in Corinth was something quite different. And so there is a problem of interpretation, but there is also a problem, a church historical problem, you might say. For as the era of the early New Testament church came to a close, so do almost all of these references to speaking in tongues. The only time these references crop up in historical documents are in connection with heretical, or rather fringe groups. And in addition, it has to be noted that none of the church fathers of the early church claimed to have spoken in tongues, and nor did Luther, Calvin, Knox, Whitfield, Edwards, Wesley, Spurgeon, Kuyper, Bavink, and you can go on numbering and naming other leading figures. And to say that the reason for this has to do with deformation in the church just doesn't cut it. And then to allege that in 1901 in San Francisco, of all places, this changed with the rise of Pentecostalism, well, that is surely a rather haughty position to take. So there are interpretive and historical problems here, and you can add to them a rating problem. Obviously, there were believers in the church at Corinth who rated tongues as being the number one spiritual gift. But nevertheless, as we saw last time, Paul himself disagrees. He leaves room for tongues, and then we believe that he is referring to the ability, the miraculous ability to speak real languages never learned. But he makes it very clear that there is another gift that is even more profitable. It's called prophecy. And why is prophecy more beneficial? Well, because prophecy is intelligible, it's understandable, it's comprehensible. People can hear it, grasp it, work with it, apply it. Unfortunately, that is not always the case with tongues. Strange tongue is something that no one can understand or work with. It can often be very unprofitable. And the only thing that makes it profitable or edifying, says the Apostle Paul over and over again, is the presence and the use of an interpreter. But now, beloved, having dealt with these three problems at the least doesn't mean we've come to the end of them. For as we turn to the rest of 1 Corinthians 14, we note there were a number of other issues in the Corinthian church. Therefore, this morning I would like to preach to you on the theme, Paul continues to instruct the Corinthians on right worship, and he tells them to grow up and embrace prophecy. He tells them to wise up and promote peace, and he tells them, to button up and submit to God. My beloved, as we turn to verse 20, we can sense that the Apostle Paul's patience is starting to wear rather thin. You can hear it in those words, Brothers, stop thinking like children. 
Actually, he's telling them it's time for them to grow up. He's telling them to be adults in their thinking. And then he refers them to the law, which is here another word for the Old Testament in general or for the book of Isaiah in particular. And to what part does he refer? Well, he refers, as you can see and as you can find out, to chapter 28 of the prophecies of Isaiah. And to those words, through men of strange tongues and to the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, why does he quote those ancient words of the prophet Isaiah? To prove a point. And the point is that tongues, in a way, in a manner of speaking, are a sign for unbelievers. And to understand this, you need to look at the original context of the words of Isaiah. They were spoken, they were written in a time of judgment. For centuries, the Lord God had been speaking to his people Israel through the mouths of various prophets. And he had been speaking to them in a language that they could all understand and grasp. But had they listened? Had they learned anything? Had they repented? No, we're told they continued on in their rebellious ways. And so what is God going to do next? Well, Isaiah says he's going to send foreigners to them, enemies and conquerors who will come and speak to them, only they will not understand them. Their tongues will be foreign to them. But even that will not wake them up. Even the foreign foreign speech of invaders will not bring them to their senses In a way, you can say these signs or these tongues, they become a sign of of judgment, almost of curse. And now that's pretty blunt language. And we may wonder, why does the Apostle Paul resort to it? Well, I think that the answer lies in his frustration at getting them to understand that while tongues belong to that category of spiritual gifts, they can be abused if they are not used rightly. Read verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in a tongue and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, Will they not say that you are out of your mind? And I don't think that's too hard to imagine. Just imagine if this Sunday we came together and instead of speaking only that one language, Swahili, that I mentioned last Sunday, and incidentally somebody did give me a few words of it afterwards. But imagine if we all began instantly to speak in many different kinds of languages. And then imagine, too, that if a stranger came in off the street and heard and looked at all of this, what would he think? Well, you know, he would leave almost immediately, and then he would spread the word that those Canadian Reformed worshippers on 52nd Avenue and Langley are out of their ever-loving minds. They have lost it completely. And now in light of that, The point that Paul is making is not so difficult to understand. He's saying, be careful as to how and when and where you use the gift of tongues. If you're going to use it in a public worship service, make sure that there is an interpreter present. 
Otherwise, you're going to create all kinds of misunderstandings and you're going to get a really bad reputation in town. On the other hand, if there is an interpreter present, cease and... If there is no interpreter present, cease and desist. Employ the gift in private. But not in the church. But then, beloved, if the Apostle Paul limits tongues, he doesn't limit, on the other hand, prophecy. In verse 22 he says, But prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. And in verse 24 and 25 he adds, But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, and so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. You see, the decisive thing is that prophecy is spoken in a language that people, even unbelievers, can understand. And now, of course, prophecy and the explanation or application of Scripture is primarily and first of all for believers. But Paul is saying it is also able to convict and to convince unbelievers. It may well confront them with their own sins. It may well expose the deep secrets of their hearts. It may well cause them to fall down and see God. After all, is that not what it did on the day of Pentecost? You perhaps recall how the people heard Peter preaching repentance, and then the Scripture says their hearts were stirred and their consciences were seared, and finally they asked out in desperation to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? To which they received the answer, Repent and be baptized. And many of them were. All of that can happen in Jerusalem. It can happen in Corinth. And so what is the bottom line for the Corinthians and for us as well? Surely it is this. Grow up and embrace prophecy. In other words, aim for maturity and busy yourself with the word of the living God. And spend your time reading it and grappling with it and hearing it and meditating on it and applying it to your life. And when you do that, it will make you a more complete and well-rounded believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Sad to say, however, beloved, that many today don't get that point. Being in China opened my eyes to the fact that the Corinthian problem is still very much with the church. So many who call themselves Christians hunger and search for the more unusual or spectacular spiritual gifts like healings and miracles, tongues and signs and then prophecies in a very limited sense of being able to predict the future. And things like the study, the consistent, disciplined study of the Word, 
a faithful prayer life, corporate worship, helping the saints. That so often takes a backseat to this relentless search for the spiritually spectacular. And the result, it is, as Paul says, a lack of maturity, a shallowness of mind, a, a limited understanding of the riches of the gospel. And it all causes us to ask ourselves, are we growing in the faith? Are we still maturing? Are we still discovering? If we are, praise the Lord. If we're not, then maybe it's because we're not really, truly into that word, that marvelous living word of prophecy. But then, beloved, that's not all. There is another thing in our text. For there Paul is not only telling the Corinthians to grow up, he's also telling them to wise up. Well, in what way does he mean this? What What's his problem, his next problem? Well, briefly, it has to do with how they conduct themselves when they come together and worship the Lord. Look at the verses 26 to 33, as well as 37 to 40. And, and if you do, the picture that emerges is this. They, they come together and, and everyone is eager to make a contribution. This person has a hymn. That person has a word of instruction. This person has a word of interpretation. That one has a revelation. This one has a tongue. That one has an interpretation. And you know, in that setting, it's fine. But nevertheless, what's not so fine is what happens next. But when they get together, they all want the floor at the same time. The ones that do not get it shout, and the ones who have it need to shout louder. And so the competition begins. And so does the chaos and the disorder. And it's obvious when the Apostle Paul comments, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. You see, they weren't weighing. They're far too busy competing. And that's obvious too when he says in verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. There's another thing that wasn't happening. Revelation or no revelation, the first speaker, once he had the floor, just kept on rattling on and on and on. And that's why Paul admonishes them. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. In other words, stop thinking about yourself and ego tripping. Instead, think about others. And how you can best edify them. And in addition, he reminds them of an ancient truth. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Prophecy, in other words, is not anarchy. Prophecy is not tumult. Spirituality is not to be equated with upheaval. 
of prophecy. Prophecy, too, has to be under control. And it has to do with order. And why? Because as Paul puts it, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. That's what he says in verse 33 and in verse 40, but but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. What they're currently doing discredits the Lord. Their worship is filled with disorder and confusion. It is a noisy shambles and a pandemonium. And that offends God. Because our God loves peace. Our God makes peace. Our God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to establish peace. And if peace should reign anywhere, it is in the church and among the people of God. But that's not, that's not what was happening. The Corinthians were an insult in a way to God. And Paul wants them to do something about it. He says in verse 38, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Quite simply, he says, listen to me or risk being excluded. It's time for some harsh medicine. The church must get back on track. But beloved, what does order mean? Does it mean that Paul wants the church to be in a straight jacket? Does he want to make worship boring? Not at all. He's saying that there is room for many things to happen within the context of worship. Obviously, if you read carefully what he writes here in the New Testament, that meant hymns and words of instruction, revelations, tongues, interpretation. In our time, it means prayers, readings, preachings, singing, offerings, sacraments. In public worship, a lot happens. And Paul has no trouble with that. The matter that concerns him is whether or not all of these things are being done in an edifying, positive, nurturing, and upbuilding fashion. And also, are they being done in love? And even more than that, are they being done in such a way that God is honored? Those are the kind of questions that must be asked and answered. For this is the way, peace and blessing. This is the way to right worship. But that is not all. For there's one more matter, beloved, that concerns the Apostle Paul, and it has to do with the women in the church. Basically, He tells them to button up, which means to button up their lips. Look at the verses 33b and 34 and 35. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. 
If you want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow. Was it me or did the temperature just rise a few degrees in this building? These are controversial words to say the least. And you know they've caused the Apostle Paul to be labeled the ultimate male chauvinist. But where does that leave us? And what are we to do with these particular words of 1 Corinthians 14? An ever-increasing number of scholars and commentators, evangelical and otherwise, have taken the position that these words were not really written by the Apostle Paul at all. They say some later, sour, woman-hating, hair-brained monk probably wrote them. And the result, therefore, is ignore these words. They're not authentic. They don't belong in the Bible. Just cross them out. Now, that's an interesting approach. But you know, there's one very big problem with that approach, and that is that all of the ancient manuscripts that we have, and there are hundreds and thousands of them included. You see, there's no proof whatsoever that these words constitute a later insertion. Another approach is to insist that these words were actually a quotation that some of the Corinthian believers were bandying about and that Paul rejects it when he says sarcastically in verse 36, did the word of God originate with you? And again, that's a rather novel approach. But again, closer linguistic scrutiny doesn't support that line of interpretation either. So where does that leave us? Well, I think it leaves us with the need to look at the words of the Apostle Paul more closely than we often do. And we do, when we do that, we see that the Apostle Paul chooses his words carefully and that in a way, the entire interpretation of these words rests on one word and that's the word disgraceful. The Apostle Paul speaks about it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Well, what was going on in the Corinthian church? Well, remember, we've seen it. There was chaos in the worship service. There was chaos when it came to spiritual tongues and their correct use. And there was also chaos spilling over and impacting on how married women were conducting themselves in the worship services. It would seem that some of them were standing up in the worship services and acting in such a way that they were embarrassing their husbands with their shrill outbursts and their ridiculous comments. One thing that every husband wants, he may not admit it, but you know, one thing that every husband wants is a wife to be proud of. It's rather hard to be proud of your wife when she makes a rather public spectacle of herself in a worship service. No one wants to meet with the boys at Tim Hortons on Monday and be reminded that in one way or another his wife is something else or is like Madonna on steroids. 
And it's because of that ridiculous situation that the Apostle Paul says, women should remain silent in the church. And they should ask their husbands at home. You see, what he's trying to do is he's trying to keep Christian worship sane and sober. And he's trying to keep Christian marriages intact. And this Paul says, this is not just his private opinion. This is not just his personal crusade. No, he says it represents God's will as well. For look, he underlines his words by saying, as the law says. And that's another word for saying, this is what God is telling you. This represents his law, his will, his word. So ladies in Corinth and elsewhere, zip your lips. If you're not prophesying, listen to God. Conduct yourself with proper decorum. And indeed that goes for all of us. Corporate worship time is not chaos time. Neither is it party time or talent show time. And it's also not let down your hair time and say whatever comes to the top of your head. Rather, it's a time to look to God. Listen to God. Pray to God. Praise, thank, and honor God with all our hearts and minds and voices. And in addition, it's a time to edify, encourage, and build up one another. It's a time to sing together, pray together, listen together, celebrate together. What a blessed time. Cherish it, beloved, and use it well. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.